Good morning. As we settle in, if you brought your Bible or you have a smartphone or an iPad and you want to follow along with where we are this morning, please open to 1 John chapter 4, a couple books before Revelation. My name is Eric Williams, and if I look like a new face around here, that's not you, it's me. I am a new face around here. I am filling in the role as a new youth pastor here. I am one of the, just one of the members of the team whose mission it is to see more and more young people in the teenage world become fully devoted followers of Christ. So uh, even though I'm new to the family here, if you've been around South Shores any time in the last quarter century, you may know a little bit about me already. Uh, You see, the woman who uh, gave me life has been most of the Sundays of the last 25 years playing the organ, Beth Williams. Um, So I'm not responsible for that. I'm just letting you know that's how I entered the world, and I have been her son the last 41 years, and I find myself here today preaching to you guys for the first time. So with that in mind, I feel it would be remiss if I didn't tell you a story about my mom who is not unlike other moms in her role, her job is to instruct, remind, cajole, nag her children the way they should go across a spectrum of areas. For example, in our house, when we kids would complain about something serious, perhaps like tomatoes, uh, I might say something like, Mom, I do not like tomatoes. And she almost always would say something like this, Honey, a better way to say that would be, tomatoes are not my favorite, but I'll eat what I can with a grateful heart. (laughs) Or I would say something like, I do not want to clean my room before I go out to play. And she would pull me aside and say, Honey, a better way to say that would be, cleaning my room is not my favorite, but because you asked me to, I will obey. She would remind me time and time again, and it seemed like a broken record was playing, if you remember what those are. (laughs) But you know what's interesting? All these years later, as, as I have my own children, you can see where this is going, you know what I say to my kids when they say something like, Dad, we're having bagels again? Why bagels? I hate bagels kids, a better way to say that would be, bagels are not my favorite, but I'll eat what I've been given with a grateful heart. So I guess that broken record wasn't that bad. In retrospect, it's a tune that I needed to hear over and over again. And that's how you and I, us humans, are. We have terrible memories when we're young, and then it gets worse. We simply need to be reminded again and again and again about almost everything. When it comes to life in Christ, we need to be reminded about having a grateful heart due to our richness in Christ. We need to be reminded about where we can find total forgiveness for our deep sin problem. We need to be reminded about where to find true and lasting contentment in this world. We need to be reminded about how Jesus has loved us, and when he has loved us, this list goes on and on. 
So this broken record plays on and on, and it needs to keep playing because of our memories. So this letter, 1 John, we've been going through has many of these reminders, and in it, it has some crucial news, critical reminders even for those who aren't yet followers of Christ. This letter to 1 John, that 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, it's not John's only writing. He had a lot to say. He was an apostle. He was an eyewitness. And this was before keyboards. He couldn't write fast enough, but he wrote down as much as he could to communicate about Jesus. And in John's gospel, he told the people he was writing to a crucial reminder that lays a foundation for the letter we're examining today. In John 20, 31, he wrote these words, But these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, and by believing, you may have life in his name. What's interesting is this simple truth. Life in Jesus. That's a truth that begins being sung and prayed over our infants the first day that trembling mom drops her kid off with them. Life in Jesus' name. Uh, as we saw this morning with children's ministry, those kids are reminded about life in Jesus' name every Sunday from kindergarten to fifth grade and all week at VBS. Life in Jesus' name. Teenagers from sixth grade to twelfth grade, they have seven years of being reminded and we know that they need it, that there's life in Jesus' name. The seniors at South Shores do not let this stop on Sunday. They have multiple gatherings midweek. When they gather together to play this broken record of life in Jesus' name, to remind themselves of this good news. And after all those, here we are again, going over it, playing this record again this morning. News like this doesn't get old, but our memories do. So we need to keep this playing. This broken record has to keep going. Now this particular broken record that we're examining this morning it's playing a special tune. It's, it's golden, I'll call it. It's, it's eternal. It's something we need for now and all time. And it's a tune that we don't just want to get into our head. We need our hearts to embrace it so that our hearts can begin to pump the way our Creator intended it to, so that our minds can begin to be reshaped the way Jesus desires for every person who's forgiven in Him. So as we move through this little letter of John, he's going to show us his hand, and he's going to make it undeniably clear why he wrote the letter at all. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he penned these words, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So this broken record is still playing this tune over and over again. It's showing us where to find eternal life. It's showing us how eternal life even begins now for the believer. It's not just in when heaven comes, it begins now. So as Ty and Micah have been walking us through this little letter, we've seen something interesting about 1 John. It's not like a legal document where you hold it up and you're like, what is he saying? And, and it's not like a term paper with its structure. It's more like a it's a not an angry email, but an, an email where you're just trying to get it all out. It's a personal plea, and it's filled with almost an angst where he's, oh, I need you to know these essential truths. And here's what he wants them to get into their heads. First of all, you need to know and you can know Christ. And he wants them to know so much, he told them this over 40 times in this, in this letter. 
40 times. If my mom had told me to bring a sweatshirt to school 40 times, I may have obeyed her. But we need to know and be reminded this often, right? And then he wants us to know to remain, to abide in Christ, to continue to make our home with Christ. He, he told us this over 24 times we got this reminder. And then he wants us, as a result, to love other people. This reminder came through this letter 46 times. 46 times. He's trying to bang it into our hearts. And if we boil this letter down, we can see very clearly that John wants good things for the people that are special to him. And I want you to know just how special they are, because that can tune the way that we listen. When John wrote this letter, the people he's writing to, he addresses them in a very specific way. He calls them his special children. The Greek word is technia, and he's, he, it's like my, my, my child, my special one. And he's communicating to them with that passionate angst. The way that I can think about it is whenever I have to speak firmly to my five-year-old son, maybe he's run across the street without looking for cars, and he's about to get hit, and I say, Elias, and I try to call him back, and he is suddenly rocked by his dad's voice loud, and he doesn't handle that well, and he comes back to me, and he often will say, Daddy, do you still love me? And to think about how I want to address him now, oh, son listen, my, my, my special child. And this is the tone I think that John is using to address these people. Listen to these reminders I have for you. You need to know them. And he's also interested, not just in these people who know Christ, he's also interested that those who don't yet know Christ may come to know Jesus and be saved. He's aware that this world is filled with people who don't know Jesus, and he wants them to find life in him. So John He's going to write this letter, and he's going to try to get across four main things. So here's the four things. First of all, he wants them to know how they can be truly happy. He writes in chapter 1, we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. Don't look outside of it. It's here. And then he's going to tell them, here's how you can battle sin, and it's going to be a battle. Chapter 2, he writes, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And then he's going to get even more practical and say, I want to help you learn how to be on defense for when you're lied to. That lie may come from some another person. That lie might come from the enemy. And it, if we're honest, sometimes our lies come from our own minds. And we're going to need to be on defense. I've written these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Return to the truth in Christ. And lastly, he's going to remind them how they can know for sure that you have life in Christ. Verse 13 of chapter 5, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So these records are playing, and we're going to let them play, okay? So if you would, let's pick up 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, and I will read the passage we're going to go through today. 1 John 4, 16, And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, for we are as he is in this world. 
There's no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother he has seen cannot love the God he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we call on you. We ask you to help us to grab onto these truths that this uh, reminder is coming at us and giving us. I pray that we would capture it. Holy Spirit, help our hearts to receive it and help us to respond the way you call us to. In Jesus' name, amen. So in verse 16, we get a picture that John loved Jesus very much, and he wants us to know him, okay? But John is also pretty serious that we would not just have a head knowledge, a cerebral knowledge about Christ and loving Christ, not just an emotional high. John wants us to know, to to believe. He's saying that you can trust this. You can take it to the bank. It's verifiable. He wants you to be able to stand firm on it. So, yes, while the love of Christ is a love that can overwhelm us, we might sing in a worship song, and it might fill our hearts to bursting, we might sing, but it's also a type of love that can set us on a new path that has its roots in cement, in a firm foundation. I think this is what John would mean when he talks about remaining and abiding in Christ. We're called again and again as Christians to return to the foot of the cross in repentance. This head knowledge that Jesus loves us is to take root in our heart and then ultimately to reprogram how we think about things. It's to reprogram what we love. It's to reprogram how we repent and return on a daily basis. It will even turn us from loving the things of this world that would steal us away from the better and truer love of God. Let's look at verse 17 and 18 again. In this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, for we are as he is in this world. There's no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear, because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears has not yet reached perfection in love. Uh, This week, Pastor Ty told us a story about a day, an afternoon a while back where he killed some time while sitting in a courtroom, a traffic courtroom, observing people in their darkest hour. And he sat there for a while, maybe a couple hours, and just listen to defendant after defendant step before the judge, I'm sure Ty was equal parts fascinated and entertained by these situations, the excuses, and the judgments that were were rendered. But whether or not Ty would, would be sitting there, if you or I were stepping before a judge for running over a pedestrian or through a red light, we would be afraid because we know the weight of the law. But when followers of Jesus are brought before the judgment seat of God, we can have no fear 
because we can know, John would tell us, that in Jesus, our name can be seen as innocent before God. When believers stand before God, God does not see their sins, which would prevent them from being in his presence. He sees the sacrifice of Jesus that covers them. He sees Christians as washed and clean in Jesus' righteousness, making them his special children instead of his enemies. That's why we can have confidence on the day of judgment, and today even, and with that, have the boldness to love other people who aren't that lovely. Maybe you're related to them. Maybe you live near them. If you've been a Christian any length of time, you will meet one shortly. But this confidence John writes about is also why we don't have to fear that others don't accept us or fear that people reject us, or why we don't have to fear losing our hair, our hearing, or getting a zit at the end of our nose on prom night, and why we don't need to punch back when someone speaks evil of us. Because when we can really wrap our minds and hearts around what our acceptance before God means, it will shake us up. It will reorder us and, and reorder how we deal with pain frustration, sorrow, loss, and it will free us to be special children of God to love like Jesus rather than lashing out like the world might in fear or anger. And almost every time these hardships or fearful situations crop up, we're going to need this broken record to be playing, to remind us of that tune that the grace of God is ours in Christ the followers of Jesus can have confidence even in judgment. They can have confidence in sadness. They can have a, a robustness in their, in their sorrow. When things change in your life or you're, you have a huge loss or you're sick, you can have this tune playing that you can have a confidence in Christ. For a different perspective, we may turn to the translation of the Bible called the message, if you've heard of that. I'm going to read to you a paraphrase this morning of this passage, but not from the message. 1985 is when this paraphrase was written. There's a pastor named John Piper who was much younger then. But in 1985, he was preaching this exact passage this morning to his church in Minnesota. And to help his congregation, he paraphrased verse 17 from the original Greek language. And I'm going to take his work from him and share it with you. Listen to what he said about verse 17. When you love each other with love that's more than just talk, when the love of God reaches its practical goal of action in your life, you will experience a deep and unshakable confidence before God. Much talk of love with few deeds of love destroys assurance. And we've all experienced this from time to time. Our conscience condemns us because we think deeds of love, but we don't do them. But if we put our money where our mouth is or put our time where our tongue is, then we will have a deep sense of the reality of our own faith and we'll feel confident for the day of judgment because then we are acting the way Jesus acted. End quote. Acting the way Jesus acted because of what he's done is the tune. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, Yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother, he has not seen, he has seen, cannot love the God he has not seen. And we have this command from him the one who loves God must also love 
his brother. As I mentioned earlier, the love of Christ, while incredible, while indescribable, is also very practical. Jesus physically took our place on the cross. That's about as practical as it gets. If you've received the gift of the cross, you're called to give away that same love with your physical self to other physical people. It's not just in La La Land. Christian love starts within the church since the church starts as a gathered people. But soon, we move outside the walls of the church and hopefully motivated by the love of Christ, which we don't deserve, we begin to love immediately whoever is our neighbor. And what that love looks like is not necessarily covered in stained glass and candles and beauty. Loving like Jesus is often just jeans and a t-shirt kind of stuff. It's day-to-day, it's often boring, but it's necessary. There's a story I ripped off about a young guy who was getting married to a woman he loved. And he was trying to communicate to her just how much she was getting in this husband of hers, fiancé of hers. And he, the fiancé, was telling his future wife, he said, every night when we get married, I'm going to read poetry to you. Every night, I'm going to write poetry about you. I, I am going to serenade you every night with love songs. I am going to we, make you dinner by candlelight. I am going to climb mountains for you. I am going to swim oceans for you. And this went on and on. And this practical woman began to maybe fish for some reality. And she eventually stopped him and said, okay, this is all very nice, but will you wash the dishes? (laughs) Stained glass, washing dishes. They seem so different. One seems so holy, one seems so hot. But sometimes, washing dishes, remembering someone's name, picking up their paper, holding their child, cleaning up their lawn, bringing them to church, not treating them how they deserve to be treated, because of Jesus is our job. Jesus himself made this very clear in John 13, 35, when he was recorded saying, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This gets quite difficult, no need to say, when we encounter a brother or sister who has wronged us or keeps doing us wrong. Everything in my mind and maybe yours keeps telling us to hurt them back and worse than they hurt us. Everything in our flesh says, keep distance, keep them from hurting us again. Or worse, we may begin to hate them in our hearts. But hopefully this broken record that's playing this golden tune will play and remind us that we can't at the same time love God and hate a brother or sister. It doesn't work like that. The love of God bulldozes that wall, closes the distance, and shows us what Paul wrote in Romans 5, that God proves his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, anybody? Christ died for us. 
So if we can savor this morning that we were loved while we were still sinning against God, then hopefully our hearts can be stirred to love others even when they sin against us. So I joked this morning that there used to be a time in our world and culture when people read books. I had to go back to 1940s to see this take place. But in in the late 30s, early 40s, a book was written by an author named J.R.R. Tolkien called Lord of the Rings. And uh, it was a book before it was a movie. Most of you know that. But in the book Lord of the Rings, one of the main characters, Samwise Gamgee, looked up to the wise wizard Gandalf and he said, is everything sad going to come untrue? It's a great line if you can wrap your brain around it. Is everything sad going to come untrue? This line might help us realize that when you really get the love of Christ, when you receive it truly and then you give it away, the brokenness that's in our own hearts, the the trail of sin, the, the offenses of others, it can begin in a sort of way to come untrue. Here's what I mean. Because that would be a miracle. That, right? That would be a miracle for those things to come untrue. And are miracles real? I mean, could that happen? Well, if God is who he says he is, he's a supernatural God. He's not like you and me, right? Listen to what Paul says talking about Abraham in Romans chapter 4, verse 17. Paul says, Abraham believed in God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. You ever tried that with breakfast? Call things into existence that don't exist. How could God ever take something broken in my life and make it untrue? It'd be a miracle. It'd be supernatural. But that's what happens in Christ. So how can we love those who hurt us? This is Jesus. This is the love of God. So as I close, I want to think back to Sunday school, flannel graph, the coat of many colors. Ring a bell? Joseph, we all felt bad for him as kids. We still might. His naughty brothers, bad attitudes, get jealous. They beat him up. They sell him off to slavery or death. They don't care. Dad's favorite is gone. He gets imprisoned wrongfully, spends years in prison. As the Lord would have it, he rises to become the second most powerful man in the world behind Egypt's pharaoh. And in the story, an account, historical account of Joseph, we see something put on display, a little portrait of Christ. Joseph very powerfully lives out what it's like to embody Jesus, what it's like to love your brothers in a way that Jesus has loved us and still loves us, his children who make up the church. So I want to read to you something that an old preacher wrote about Joseph. This preacher is named H.A. Ironside. If you've heard of Moody Church in Chicago, he was their, their preacher and pastor from 1929 to 1948. And here's what he had to say about Joseph. He said, Joseph's dreams were wonderfully fulfilled when his brothers came in, in their abject need, bowing at his feet, glad to receive from his hand that which would maintain physical life. And so now he who is greater than Joseph gives eternal life to bankrupt sinners who bow before him, confessing their guilt and owning his grace. 
The tender heart of Joseph, Joseph, his deep compassion for his brothers, comes out most clearly when he reveals himself to them. And again, when they doubt his love after his father's death. Like the one of whom he was but a foreshadow, he was a man of tears. As he looked at his brothers, he would not refrain from weeping. And when they feared that he would remember their sins after the burial of Jacob, their distrust of his love moved him again to sobs uncontrolled. He, could, he loved to be trusted. He could not bear to be doubted. And in this, how truly he portrays the character of the Lord Jesus. So I ask you today, what would allow somebody who's been so wronged like Joseph then love those and give mercy to those who sought his death and demise? It would have to be the love and the mercy of God that came to Joseph, which he then extends to his brothers, just like you and I are to extend that love to a dying world. In Genesis 45, we read how Joseph even acknowledges that through this perilous and dark time in his life when everything was going from bad to worse, he acknowledges that God was in the midst of his pain on his journey, that he was not alone and abandoned. And that can help you and I where we are at this morning. So hopefully, like Joseph, if you're a believer in Christ, we can love others because God has first loved us in Christ. Whether our neighbors are likable or whether they speak bad about us, we can love them as Christ has loved us. If you're a believer in Christ today, just like me, you are a former bankrupt sinner who's found forgiveness and limitless riches in Christ's love. And as a result, we now have the resources outside of ourselves and in Christ to give away that life and that love to those that need it, both in the church and out. Those without Jesus are wandering in the poverty of life without him, and we can give them the riches of Christ as we love them. And hopefully, this tune will keep playing this because we'll forget soon, like going home after lunch, and we need the broken record to play again. Honey, I know loving people that aren't lovely is not your favorite, but we love because he first loved us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, we are so needful of what you offer. We are truly bankrupt without you, and every time we think that's not true, would you correct us, please? <laughs> we need you to stir in our hearts and help us to find the lasting joy that's found in loving others just how you've loved us? Would you change our church to be more and more like Jesus as we grow? Would more and more people find the deep, deep riches of love in Christ? Turn our hearts back to you as the tune keeps playing and pointing our hearts your way. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>